Like I said, I hate games. And not the way that people on dating apps say they hate games. I hate games games. Board games, card games, party games like mafia, running around games, capture the flag. What a nightmare. For years, I have described my experience of games with this small, charming monologue. I'm at a dinner party, I'm talking, I'm having fun, I'm getting to know people, having conversation, when somebody at the party says, excuse me, excuse me, stop, stop for just a minute, stop having fun. Um, we're gonna have a different kind of fun now. Um, it's gonna interrupt the fun that you've been having. This new kind of fun includes you learning a bunch of rules. I'm gonna explain them first, and then you're gonna learn them and memorize them, and then we can start having fun again. Although I'm sure right now I don't sound like a fun person, I have plenty of fun in my life, plenty, without adding new complicated rules, some kind of rule-bound kind of fun. Thanks, I don't need it. I got my anti-game stance in part from my dad, which worries me. He has the same kind of like anti-game shtick that I do, like a little monologue he thinks is funny but it's a monologue that, in case you missed it, says honestly, I hate playing games. <laughs> My dad's a very co compassionate guy. He's like an extrovert's extrovert. He loves people, and nonetheless, he doesn't want to do anything that he doesn't want to do for any length of time. So that's why it worries me, anti-game stance. It's not a good look. There are, in my defense, a few games that I like. I'm not a total monster. I enjoy the card game set. It's shapes, pattern recognition. As someone who deals a lot with language and words, it feels great to stretch that part of my brain. I also like Scrabble. There's language, words. I even have two versions of Scrabble, a travel version and a home version. I'm, I'm very good at both of those games. I like the party game Celebrity. Not that anyone asks me to play. Um, partially because I've surrounded myself with mostly non-games playing people, and also I've made it very clear that I don't like games. I thought about it, and I couldn't find or figure out what the name is for people who only want to do exactly what they want to do, and never, even for a moment, what other people want to do. People who don't want to learn or follow rules. Hedonists? That was one guess. Anarchists? Whatever the name is, I wouldn't say that it's exactly a gospel way of life. Even though on the face of it, Jesus was not a big rules guy. He demonstrably did not care about rules that were extremely important to his faith, his community, his culture, his place and time. He disregarded rules about bodily purity, rituals, keeping the Sabbath, who to talk to, who not to talk to, who to touch, who could touch him, what counted as appropriate company, how to talk to God, how to talk about God, how to talk about his own relationship with God, what people deserved attention or forgiveness or healing. And I tend to err on that side of things. I tend to err on the side of disregarding rules. I mean, Jesus did it. Plus, so many rules have been weaponized, emphasized to the detriment of people's well-being. I'm a Jesus follower, and I'm a progressive Jesus follower, never mind my whole bad attitude about rules and games. 
I had, as I thought about this sermon, to wonder, what are the rules that I do care about? What are the rules that I think we're supposed to care about? And then I realized that Jesus ruined every dinner party he ever went to. He ruined every nice, fun conversation that people were having, every encounter, every synagogue service, every walk through Jericho or Capernaum or Samaria by interrupting and saying, stop, stop, stop what you're doing. You should stop, I'm going to stop. We're going to do something different now. There was a period of my life when, contrary to all indications, I loved the game of baseball. As much as I'm not a games person, I'm really not a sports person. But I was living in Boston, and some of the people I loved best loved baseball. In particular, they loved the Red Sox. And this was before the Red Sox were good, okay? So it was real. Or it was like just as they were getting good, but these were people who had loved them for decades. I didn't, I didn't know that that's what was happening. I started listening to games on the radio. I started learning the players and their players' names. I started picturing the game in my head. I started going with a, a friend to his bar to watch the games and to learn about the decades-long grief that is being a Red Sox fan. I learned how often the team got everything right, how often it seemed like they'd live into the promises they made in the early innings. No, only to lose, lose, lose. I started to use the word we to talk about the Red Sox. I learned how to read baseball statistics, like the fine print part of the sports section, a skill that is now like as lost to me as biblical Greek, like I can figure it out with Google, but otherwise. And then, during the 2004 season, the Red Sox just kept getting better. Until we were in the ALCS against the Yankees, down three games, and for the first time in baseball history, we came back and forced a game seven, which we won. So that we went to the World Series, and there I was in my friend's bar knitting socks, because I'm still me, and knitting like relieved the tension that I felt in my whole body about this game. There was another guy in the bar who was like, whoa, I've never seen anybody knit with four sticks. I was like, they're not sticks. And then we won. We swept the Cardinals in four games in the World Series. And then I was walking down the street with my knitting in my bag, grinning because we had done it. We had broken the curse. I think most of us were here for the poem at the very beginning, the William Carlos Williams poem about the crowd at the ball game, the crowd that was moved uniformly by a spirit of uselessness, a delightful spirit of uselessness. The details of the game, he said, the escapes, the errors, the scale and scope and meaning of the game, of the crowd itself, it's elevated in that poem to the terror of the Inquisition, the liberation of a revolution. It is beauty itself, not the game in that poem, not the game, but the crowd, the uniformity of their delight, a uniformity of delight in a diverse crowd of people that's held by the container of the stadium or the, the container of the baseball game. It's a game that's constructed of rules and fine print and names of players that you don't need to memorize, but which you could come to know anyway. The thing that the crowd becomes is made possible by the game, the structure of it. 
During the playoffs against the Yankees, games four and five both went into extra innings. It's me preaching about baseball. <laughs> it was so good, you guys. Ugh. Game four went into, uh, went super late, like 12 innings. Game five, the very next night, went to 14 innings. Driving around Boston, it felt like everyone on the roads was sleepy. It was like a little dangerous. One of those nights, one of those extra innings games, I tried to go to sleep with the radio on, which was like a losing proposition. I was like in bed listening like this. I, like, I don't think I'm going to sleep. Like I said, driving in Boston those mornings, it felt dangerous, like everyone was sleepy. Uh, I said as much to a friend who laughed at me. She was a friend who knew me from like a different part of my life, like the hippie farm camp part of my life. And she said, it's, you know, it's like, it's funny that everyone's tired, but it's weird how like people will say that they have like a bad day if the Red Sox lose, like it affects them personally. And I was like, oh, it does affect me personally. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in it. I watched game seven, that's the tiebreaker against the Yankees in a friend's living room. We had the TV on with the sound down because everyone knows you want to listen to the radio announcers. It was not a fun gathering, it was a serious one. We watched tension mounting. If we won this, we'd go to the World Series. If we won this, we'd do something that no one had ever done before except in hockey, but I'm not gonna get into hockey. We were gonna come back from three down to win in the best of seven. Into the silence of the room, this redhead guy named Ned, who no one knew very well, said, you know what would be interesting? If they lost right now. <laughs> People were angry, like, and it was like polite, you know, it's not like a sports bar crowd. It was like polite intellectuals who were like filled with rage by this idea, you could just feel it. And the host like kind of gently tried to redirect, it was like, and red-headed Ned persisted. He was like, no, I'm just, I'm just saying it would be interesting. And our host said firmly, we don't care about that. What we care about in this room is winning. <laughs> <laughs> Rules of any kind are completely arbitrary. Games are completely arbitrary. Like, what is the point? I don't care where the flag is, and I don't care who captures it. I don't care that bishops move diagonally, like do not make me talk about chess ever. Spare me, please. I don't wanna ever have to learn spoons again or hearts or crazy eights. I don't care and I don't wanna pretend to care. And the only thing that makes all the rules worth it is caring. The last dinner party that Jesus ruined was on the night that he was arrested. He ruined it like half a dozen ways, beginning with making it weird by washing everyone's feet. And then he called some of them out. And then, at least according to the book of John, he talked for like three hours. And then he did the thing that he usually did at dinner parties, which was to say, stop, we're gonna do something different now. And at least in the book of John, he said, but first there are some rules you need to learn, or there's one rule, really, a new rule. Where I'm going, he said, you cannot follow. And, and what did he mean? Did he mean the cross or did he mean his eventual return to God? Because in other places, he said explicitly that we would and should follow. We should take up our crosses and follow him. Uh, that we would be with him, with God. That we even knew the way. 
But here he said, where I'm going, you can't come. We're going to do something different now. I'm going to give you a rule, a new rule. Love one another. As I have loved you, you should love one another. That's how people will know that you're my followers, if you love one another. One rule that it'll take a lifetime to learn to get anything close to good at. One rule on which, along with loving God, all of the rest hang. One rule through the lens of which all others can be seen. One rule that raises a question of all the others. If you emphasize this rule, are you loving one another? If you underscore this law, are you attending to the well-being of others or are you harming them? By clinging to this world, are you bringing healing to the world with love? One rule, one arbitrary rule. Because it is arbitrary. The hedonists, the anarchists, whatever they're called, they're right. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to play games. You don't have to stop what you're doing and do something else. You don't have to be kind. You don't have to, like the older guy in that second poem, you don't have to be nice to some kid at a wedding shoot hoops with him when you could be having a beer with the adults. Or maybe in, that, maybe in the poem, actually, it's the other way around. Maybe the kid is being generous and playing game with the adult who doesn't know anybody else at the party. The guy who'd rather play basketball than make small talk. You don't owe each other that. You don't owe each other anything. You don't owe each other health care. You don't owe each other asylum or food stamps or a living wage. The capitalists or whatever they're called, they're right. It's totally a construct. It's made up some stupid game. But in this room, we don't care about that. In this room, we care about each other. We love one another. We're people people. We're compassionate because that's the rule we've been given, the rule, the arbitrary rule we've chosen, the rule that we're able to choose because Jesus went where we cannot go and he broke the curse that keeps us from love.